Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. Hello and welcome to Pro-Life Thinking, a Life Training Institute podcast in which we will talk about the abortion issue and larger issues related to bioethics in a way that's winsome, reasonable, and persuasive. I'm Clinton Wilcox, your host, and I'm joined by my co-host, Aaron Brake. How's it going today, Aaron? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. We're advocates and voices for the unborn with Life Training Institute, whose mission is to equip pro-life advocates to graciously and persuasively defend their pro-life views in the marketplace of ideas and in our culture. We believe in the radical idea that it's wrong to kill innocent human beings, whether born or unborn, and we're here to equip you to defend that idea in a culture that celebrates a woman's right to choose. Now, before we begin the episode proper, we were actually planning on bringing on uh, Rich Papard, who works for Life Training Institute as well, and he's a, a medical doctor, because uh, I, I felt his input would be valuable for this episode. But unfortunately, kind of at the last minute, he got called into work. And so he's unfortunately not able to join us here for this episode. But uh, all of the information that we get regarding human development and science behind behind human development and you know what it means to be biologically alive comes from embryology textbooks. So all of these are are objective facts that we can verify by by looking up our sources. So the topic that we have for discussion today is we're going to be discussing a recent book by a doctor named Willie Parker. His book is called Life's Work, A Moral Argument for Choice. Now, he's an abortion choice doctor, and he makes a lot of statements in his book regarding things like science and philosophy and things like that. Now, his title is a little bit misleading because it's it's really not a specifically laid out argument where I support abortion, here are my reasons, and that kind of thing. In fact, it's it's basically mostly a memoir about where he came from, what he had to go through in order to get to become a doctor. So, so it's basically mostly an autobiography with a little bit of argumentation sprinkled in throughout. And unfortunately, the arguments that he does give just are not very good. In fact, his arguments are so bad that, number one, you can tell that he doesn't take pro-life people seriously. He just dismisses them as not just religious bigots, but as racists and sexists, and doesn't even really 
even attempt to respond to the pro-life argument. And so he just, he just resorts to demonizing pro-life people rather than arguing against them. And now we're going to be tackling Parker's book in three parts. Today we're going to be talking about his scientific statements. Then in our second part, we're going to be talking about his philosophical statements. And in our third part, we're going to be talking about the theological statements. So for today, we're, we're mainly going to be responding to the statements that Parker makes regarding science and why he believes science supports the pro-choice position. And before we get into responding to certain specific scientific points made by Dr. Willie Parker in his book, I think it's important to note that, as you said, Clinton, his book is largely devoid of any real science concerning the question of when life begins from a biological standpoint. As we will see, he avoids the science of embryology altogether because it doesn't support his case. And so because of that, he is forced to rely on informal fallacies such as equivocation and a lot of rhetorical language as he tries to scrape together you know, some sort of semblance of science that supports his view. Um, in fact, he seems largely ignorant of what the science of embryology tells us. This is especially interesting considering that Parker throughout his book claims to have science and truth on his side while also asserting that pro-life advocates or the antis as he refers to them are merely clinging to their religion. In reality, it's Parker who is anti-science and clinging to his own moral relativism and faulty reasoning as he tries um, unsuccessfully to deny the humanity of the unborn. Now, just to give a few examples of what he says in his book, uh, on page 143, uh, Parker states, quote, We need to call out these lies and obfuscations for what they are. For if we don't, if we don't hold those myths up to light and dissect them with the cool, rational eye of a scientist, then we will continue to be lulled into a sense of complacency over the fate of women's lives and the people who are cynically perpetuating the lies, the antis, who want to make abortion inaccessible again, will win, unquote. On page 147, Parker states, Science is the only judge before which each and every party stands entirely equal. I approach my adversaries with compassion for their faith, but armed with science. On page 155, he claims, Truth, however, doesn't matter to the antis. Now, with all due respect to Dr. Parker, it's a little hard not to laugh considering that Parker does not quote a single embryologist or text that supports his view in his entire book, not one. So just to reiterate, even though I know we've gone over these quotes in a previous episode on the science of embryology, this is what embryologists who are experts in the field tell us. Here's a few examples. In their text on human embryology and teratology, uh, O'Reilly and Mueller state, although life is a continuous process, fertilization, which incidentally is not a moment, is a critical landmark because under ordinary circumstances, a new genetically distinct human organism is formed when the chromosomes of the male and female pronuclei blend in the oocyte. Moore and Persaud in their text, The, De the Developing Human, uh, state human development begins at fertilization when a sperm fuses with an oocyte to form a single cell, the zygote. This highly specialized totipotent cell marks the beginning of each of us as a unique individual. The zygote divides many times and becomes progressively transformed into a multicellular human being through cell division, migration, growth, and differentiation. Uh, those same authors in their book, uh, Before We Are Born, state under the definition of zygote that this cell, formed by the union of an oocyte and sperm, 
is the beginning of a new human being, i.e. an embryo. And finally, Dr. Patton in his text, uh, Human Embryology, he states, the formation, maturation, and meeting of a male and female sex cell are all preliminary to their actual union into a combined cell or zygote, which definitely marks the beginning of a new individual. So again, the science of embryology seems to be clear on this point, and in response to this, Dr. Parker doesn't provide any evidence for his view. In the last paragraph on page 12, Parker states that he doesn't believe the fetus is equal to a baby or a child because it can't survive outside the uterus since it can't breathe, nor can it form anything like thoughts. Now, of course, he never justifies why these things are necessary to be equal to us older people. He just assumes it. The only reason the fetus can't breathe or form thoughts is because it is too young to do so. And, of course, the fetus does breathe. It just breathes via the umbilical cord, not through its nose. It is still taking in oxygen. Then he says that despite what the antis say, which is his not-so-nice term for pro-life people, a fetus can't feel pain up until 29 completed gestational weeks. He says this is the scientific consensus, though he doesn't give any source to support his claim. In fact, saying that the fetus can't feel pain up until 29, up until 29 completed gestational weeks is certainly not the scientific consensus, even though there are scientists who would argue for that. But there are scientists who would place it as earlier. So Parker's just being dishonest here on top of not supporting his claim at all. Now, the problem with Parker's criteria here is that they're not scientific criteria. He says that the fetus is not equal to a baby or a child because it can't survive outside the uterus, it can't breathe, nor can it form anything like thoughts. But the problem is, is that these are not scientific criteria. These are philosophical criteria, maybe, for why something shouldn't be considered a person, even though that's certainly debatable as well. But the scientific criteria for life are things like responding to stimuli and growth through cellular reproduction and metabolizing food into energy and maintaining homeostasis, which means regulating your internal temperature to keep yourself alive and uh, your, all of your parts working together for the good of the whole. All of these things are present in the unborn organism from fertilization, and that's what makes it a living organism from fertilization. So the embryology textbooks say that the unborn from fertilization is alive, but Parker denies these basic scientific facts. Yeah, I think this is one of the problems throughout his book is that Parker confuses the areas of science and philosophy, and he often conflates the terms human being and human person. Another problem, as you mentioned, regarding the claims he makes is that in many cases he simply makes assertions and not arguments. His book is not footnoted, and so it makes it that much more difficult to check certain claims for factual accuracy. Uh, now, he could be correct on certain points, but the lack of cross-referencing and citations makes it difficult to know for sure. Now, chapter 8 is where Parker really tries to offer a more extensive scientific case. Specifically, on pages 141 to 142, he says the following, quote, Most women who seek abortions are healthy and in the prime of their lives. Whatever factored into their decision-making, they know what they want to do or what they need to do by the time they enter my office, and they have gotten together the money required. These are the lucky ones. They don't need to submit to a process by which a doctor has to make estimates on survival rates and then wait for a ruling. 
Even so, they are overwhelmingly constrained. Abortion is the only personal decision that is subjected to this level of government oversight. More states require waiting periods before obtaining an abortion than buying a gun or getting married. Adults are presumed to be able to look after their own best interests and the best interests of the people who are depending on them. In every case except abortion, society bestows upon individuals this trust, even if those individuals have demonstrated that they cannot be trusted to make good decisions. The presumption undergirding abortion decision-making is that women who have had sex and are accidentally or unintentionally pregnant can't be trusted to comprehend the consequential weight of their actions. The law requires them, like bad little girls, to prove to authorities that they have thought carefully about what they're about to do. In healthcare, no other medical condition is treated this way. Take, for example, a patient diagnosed with a potentially terminal cancer and facing treatment options. Her life hangs in the balance, and no doctor can promise, with any certainty, what the outcome of any course may be. Before choosing a path, this patient has to consider, as all patients considering abortion must do, her own future. At this crossroads, what dreams does she still hope to fulfill? She also has to consider her present. Who depends on her? How much money does she have? What kind of support is available to her? Every physician understands that his or her job is to give that patient the most clear, accurate, up-to-date information about risks and outcomes, but that the choice, whether to pursue expensive, life-saving treatment or not, whether to choose a diminishment in quality of life over a shorter life, is ultimately the patient's own to make, taking her age, her temperament, her finances, her life circumstances, and the wishes of her family into account. As with abortions, some patients find these decisions to be excruciating, and some choose a course of treatment without second thought. Some choose one path and then wish, midstream, that they had chosen another. No one, not doctors, not legislators, not picketers or lobbyists, thanks to judge or shame or punish cancer patients for their decisions, even if those choices lead to death. Quite the opposite. Cancer treatment is spoken of in terms of heroics. A woman who decides not to pursue treatment and to shorten her life in order to be clear-minded for as long as possible is considered brave. A woman who decides to take radical action, to undergo surgeries, and try every experimental drug in the pipeline as a warrior. Even patients with lung cancer are not blamed and judged for smoking in the same way that women who seek abortions are blamed for having sex. Abortion is the only health care decision that pits a woman against her own self-interest and presumes to know better than she does what she ought to do. Paradoxically, a woman is venerated if she refuses life-saving cancer treatment while pregnant, but vilified if she chooses her own life over a pregnancy." End quote. Now, this just goes to show the irrationality of Parker's position, that he equates cancer treatment with abortion, that de depending on what she chooses to do when she's battling cancer, she's, she's seen as a warrior and as brave, and rightly so. But there's a difference between cancer treatment and abortion in that in a cancer treatment, you're trying to extend your own life, or you want to remain lucid as much as possible so you might refuse treatment. All of this is regarding your own life. You have choices and decisions to make regarding your own life. But regarding an abortion, you're making a life-or-death decision over somebody else. And so it's not heroic. You're not a warrior. You're not doing anything brave by choosing your own life over the life of your unborn child. That's actually the definition of selfish, to kill someone or to harm someone in order to make your own life easier in some way. So he first starts off by stating that no one, not doctors, legislators, etc., judges or shames cancer patients for their decisions, even if those decisions lead to death. 
This really shows Parker's inability to understand the other side, because of course there's a difference in performing an act that one foresees may be detrimental to him or herself, such as refusing cancer treatment to remain lucid as long as possible, even though getting treatment may extend her life, and performing an act that results in the death of another human being, that is, having an abortion. One wonders why Parker would even consider these two situations to be morally equivalent. This is really just a false analogy. As you mentioned, Clinton, cancer patients are suffering from an underlying pathology and may make different decisions regarding their own treatment based on the circumstances of their situation. But no one is forcefully and violently killing the cancer patient, as is done in abortion. And the vast majority of abortions, over 90%, kill a perfectly healthy, unborn human being. Parker goes on to state on page 143 of his book, that the political conversation around abortion has, quote, obliterated truth and crushed any nuanced understanding of what it means to live a human life, end quote. By this, he means that pro-life people are too black and white by arguing that human life begins at fertilization. Parker doesn't believe we can pinpoint when human life begins because, quote, life is a process, end quote. And of course, he completely ignores the fact that his own argument means that he can't even prove a human infant or the woman he gives the abortion to is alive, since he makes no attempt to tell us when human life begins. Now, on page 145, Parker continues, he says, quote, Another so-called fact put forth by the antis is that life begins at conception, the justification for the ridiculous claim that abortion is murder. As a Christian and a scientist, I can authoritatively attest that life does not begin at conception. This notion, that the union of the egg and sperm constitutes a new person at that moment, reflects a religious belief, and a deeply held one. But the fact is, as Justice Harry Blackman so eloquently wrote back, way back in 1973, in the majority opinion in Roe v. Wade, there is no historical, philosophical, theological, or even scientific consensus on when life begins. So while the modern Roman Catholic hierarchy might regard each instance of fertilization as a sacred event, this belief is not, and never, and has never been, universal among Christians. End quote. Now this just continues to show Parker's inability to to reason well, because Justice Blackman's decision in Roe v. Wade is even by abortion choice writers and thinkers, seen as a really poor decision, poorly reasoned, because he places whether or not we have a right to an abortion in the viability of the fetus. And of course, viability changes often because viability does not have anything to do with the fetus, him or herself. It has everything to do with the current state of medical technology. So Justice Blackman did not eloquently defend abortion rights. In fact, his decision is not only panned by even supporters of abortion, but his his views themselves are irrational. Because consider this, what if a Supreme Court justice were to write that there is no historical, philosophical, theological, or even scientific consensus on how old the earth and the universe are. So the Supreme Court is not going to make any sort of determination on that, and we're going to allow young earth creationism to be taught as science in, in schools. Well, obviously, most people, except for young earth creationists themselves, are going to be livid at that kind of argument, and yet that's the exact same kind of argument that Justice Blackman is making here, that because there's no historical, philosophical, theological, or even scientific consensus on when life begins, so we're not going to make any sort of determination on that. But then, of course, the Supreme Court said, well, so we'll go ahead and make abortion legal, meaning that they did make a determination, because you wouldn't make abortion legal if you held out any sort of possibility that the unborn could be human persons, because you're not going to kill human persons. So they, so even in trying to say that they're not going to make a determination, they actually did by allowing them to be killed. But this kind of reasoning is just pathetically poor. 
there is scientific consensus on when human life begins, that's at fertilization. And since when life begins is a scientific question, you would rely on what the scientific consensus is. You wouldn't rely on what theologians or philosophers or any other people who are not who are not speaking within their field to weigh in on. I wouldn't trust scientists to tell me whether or not God exists as a trinity. I would go to the- theologians for that. But I would go to scientists to determine how old the age of the earth or the universe is, and I would go to scientists to tell me when human life begins biologically. That's just common sense, which Justice Blackman apparently lacked. Parker tries to put himself forth as an authority on when life begins, but as an astronomer is not an authority on evolution, nor is a biologist an authority on what the atmosphere of Mars is composed of. Parker is not an authority on whether or not embryos are human beings just because he has scientific training. Embryologists are, and they consistently agree without significant controversy that human life begins at fertilization. Now, Parker is a pretty lousy doctor if he doesn't even know this basic biological fact. Of course, he dismisses the idea that life begins at conception as a deeply held religious belief and doesn't even attempt to interact with the scientific arguments pro-life people give for that view. He then appeals to Justice Blackman's ruling in Roe v. Wade, though, of course, Blackman's ruling was not scientific in nature. It was philosophical and bad philosophy at that. This phrase that Parker repeats throughout his book, that life is a process, this is really sort of his embryology wrapped up in a nutshell because that's pretty much the extent of what he has to say on the subject. He ignores what embryologists have to say and instead just repeats the phrase, life is a process. Uh, The problem, as we've pointed out before, is that Parker's committing the fallacy of equivocation. He's equivocating on the word life. When pro-life advocates argue that life begins at conception, they are arguing that a new, distinct, living, whole human being comes into existence at that time as an individual. They're not denying that human life, in the sense of the human race, has been around for thousands of years. Of course it has. But the fact that human beings have been reproducing for thousands of years and that human life has continued in that sense does not mean we cannot know when a new individual human being comes into existence. And again, the science of embryology is clear on that point. Even the quote that I read at the beginning from O'Reilly and uh, Mueller, they, they begin by saying, although life is a continuous process, fertilization, which incidentally is not a moment, is a critical landmark because under ordinary circumstances, a new genetically distinct human organism is formed. So, yeah, as you mentioned, Clinton, he makes the claim that the view that life begins at conception is merely a religious belief. And this is how he avoids any real interaction with what science actually tells us. But this is really just an intellectually lazy and dishonest. But it allows him to dismiss the view rather than having to provide any refutation of, of it. Of course, we could respond likewise and just say that, well, it's actually Parker's view that is a deeply held religious belief, and maybe that would count as sufficient refutation for Parker. I think it actually probably would, because considering that he doesn't interact with the science, I would think it definitely does count as a deeply held religious belief, one that doesn't even have any uh, any basis in reality. Uh, <laughs> on pages 145 to 146, Parker makes the following statements, quote, The fact is that for most of modern Western history, abortion, which until the advent of modern surgical procedures in the 20th century involved the ingestion of toxic herbs, roots, or potions to restore menses, has been regarded by common law as the legal and moral prerogative of pregnant women up until the moment of quickening, the first maternal perception of fetal movement in utero, which occurs at around 20 weeks. Indeed, the first anti-abortion laws were enacted in the middle of the 19th century to protect women from buying and drinking poisons peddled to them by charlatans and not because jurists had any opinion about the so-called rights of any early-stage embryo or fetus. 
Now, Parker here is just relying on falsehoods to make his case. Parker here is repeating the myth that abortion was illegal in common law to protect the life and safety of women. This is a false narrative, though Parker doesn't seem very interested in refuting false narratives if they agree with his. As Joseph de la Pena showed in his book Dispelling the Myths of Abortion History, abortion was illegal in common law to protect the life of the fetus, not to protect the health of the mother. A stark difference is that de la Pena has provided many, many sources to support his claims, and Parker doesn't offer a single one to support his. And also, Parker is correct that abortion used to be legal until the point of quickening. For the past 800 years and 200 years before their respective abortion legalizing decisions, Abortion has been illegal in British and American common law, up until, at least up until the point of quickening. So when, so when you hear an abortion choice person tell you that abortion has always been legal, and then sometime during the 19th century, like Parker is saying, they started enacting pro-life laws, well, that's, that's only part of the reality of the situation. Abortion was legal up until the point of quickening, because that was the point at which they could certainly determine that the unborn was alive, because uh, dead things don't move. And so the mother could feel the fetus moving around, and so they could definitely tell that it was alive. And so and so abortion would ma- would be made illegal after that point. The thing is, in the 19th century, they moved abortion being illegal to the point of fertilization because during the 19th century is the point at which at which embryology made its advancements and they discovered that human life begins at fertilization. And so the reason that these pro-life laws were enacted was because embryology had finally made the determination that human beings were alive from fertilization. It wasn't to protect the woman from ingesting dangerous abortifacients. On pages 148 to 149, Parker then tries to argue that life is a continuous process. The man and woman are alive, the sperm and the ovum cells are alive, and the resulting zygote is alive. Now this is, of course, not new information, nor is it particularly interesting. Of course life is a continuous process. But there is a zero point at which the sperm and ovum cells cease to exist and a new genetically distinct human organism arises in its place. This is the consensus among embryologists, even abortion choice embryologists. Parker mistakenly thinks that this shows that there's no point at which the switch for life is flipped on, so to speak. But Parker is wrong. He even tells his readers on page 181 of his book, quote, life is a process, your life is a process, end quote. Considering this is the main reason he denies human embryos and fetuses are alive, to be consistent, he must not believe anyone reading his book is alive. As you mentioned, Clinton, there's nothing new in this information he presents. This is just basic science. Yes, the sperm and egg are alive, but unlike the embryo, they are not new, distinct, living, whole human beings. Uh, the embryo is a new human being, which is why it's able to actively guide its own self-development and maturation, unlike sperm and egg. Uh, he also confuses parts with whole. Killing sperm or egg does not kill a whole human being. It only kills part of a larger human being. And the human being that those parts come from is still alive. But abortion kills the whole human being, not simply a part. The unborn does not survive abortion. Abortion is not merely scraping skin cells off of the unborn, it kills the unborn human being. Parker goes on to speak of embryos that implant but fail to thrive, resulting in miscarriages. Aside from the fact that, again, he doesn't source his claim that as many as one in five embryos fail to thrive, he seems to indicate that an embryo's failing to thrive means that it isn't a life. Of course, many infants fail to thrive as well. Perhaps Parker would be okay with infanticide, since his scientific argument would also show that infants are not lives based on his ridiculous criteria. And regarding miscarriages, it's also important to remember, as Christopher Kayser notes in his book, uh, The Ethics of Abortion, experts believe that the high rate of embryo loss and miscarriage is the result of grave abnormalities and reproductive deficiencies 
in the reproductive process, which results in incomplete fertilization. So in other words, in the majority of cases, it could be that these are not distinct living and whole human beings which die during miscarriage, but rather it's the woman's body expelling what it knows is not a complete product of conception. But Parker either ignores this point or is ignorant of it. Yeah, now we could really go on and talk about all of uh, Parker's mistakes and missteps for, for days. I mean, we're like I said, we're splitting this into three separate parts. This is just kind of scratching the surface, but this is enough to really talk about how how Parker is just really, really off the wall when he tries to talk about science and how science shows that life doesn't begin at fertilization. So, uh, Parker doesn't even attempt to make a scientific case for that. He just relies on bad philosophy and tries to disguise it as science. And of course, abortion choice advocates are going to eat it up and are going to use that to show that, you know, you know not every scientist agrees that life begins at fertilization. Well, if not every scientist agrees with that, that's irrelevant because the embryologists, the experts, agree that human life begins at fertilization. And so you can try and muddy the waters by trying to say, well, life has many different different definitions, but that's irrelevant to the point being made that pro-life people say that human life begins at fertilization and all human beings deserve equal treatment, deserve human rights. And since all human beings deserve human rights, that includes human embryos and human fetuses, trying to argue that that there are many definitions, many different definitions of life. If you try to argue that, you're guilty of the fallacy of equivocation, which Nathan and I talked about a couple of weeks ago. So relying on trying to obfuscate matters by by resorting to different definitions of the term life is not doing the abortion choice argument any favors. So we, we've been talking about Willie Parker's book, Life's Work, A Moral Argument for Choice, and we've been talking about his scientific mistakes and how he uses bad philosophy and tries to disguise them as scientific statements. So I'd like to thank you for listening. I'd like to thank, again, uh, Aaron for joining me to come on and talk about Parker's book. If you've appreciated the information we've been talking about, we would ask that you just share this around social media, Facebook, Twitter, wherever you frequent. You can rate and review us on our Facebook page as well as on iTunes. Now, this is a weekly podcast, and it takes a lot of work to put together a podcast each week on top of all the other work that I do in the pro-life movement. As Greg Cunningham of Center for Bioethical Reform says, there are more people working full-time to kill unborn babies than there are people working full-time to save them. I subsist off of donations from financial supporters. People like you keep me being able to do the work that I do. If you like what we're doing with this podcast and would like to support my work as a full-time pro-life advocate, you can go to www.prolifetraining.com, which is the Life Training Institute website, and click on donate in the menu on the top. You can give a one-time gift or you can give a monthly gift. Just be sure to put my name in the notes section so that Life Training Institute knows to put your donation into my account. And donations are also tax deductible. Now next week, Aaron's going to be returning with me and we're going to talk more about Willie Parker's book. This time we're going to talk about his philosophical mistakes. So once again, on behalf of Aaron and myself, I'd like to thank you for joining us and we will see you next time.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.